All right. Well, it is a, a joy to be here this morning and to see you all. Um, I, I see a lot of familiar faces, some I don't know. Um, just in case you don't know or, or, or were not told, I'm one of the elders at the Summit Church, um, which we were excited to be able to be a part of the work that God is doing here and are still participating in that, consider ourselves you know, sister churches and like-minded in the faith, and that's uh, an exciting thing uh, to be able to come and see what God is doing. I'm usually involved enough at the Summit that it's hard. I was telling Josh to hard to get up here and see what's going on, but really excited that this uh, opportunity came about um, and just joyed, overjoyed to be able to be here with you this morning. Um, I, my, my comfort zone is to preach from text to text. I know you guys have been going through the book of Ephesians, um, but I guess there's a transition to another book this morning. So when I asked Brother Joss, what should I preach on? He said, whatever, you know, pick something. And so I, I don't always know what to do in those moments. So I tried to think. I spent some time in prayer and thought to myself, you know, what, what, uh, what can I bring to you all from the word this morning that I would hope would be, you know, anything from the word is, is good for our edification and building up and sanctification and all of that. But what could I bring especially to you all this morning? What should I preach on? I started thinking about the fact that, you know, this is a this is a new work of God, this church, Grace Covenant Church. And and oftentimes with new works of God, there comes all kinds of different things, right? Trials and difficulties. We even see as um, I will look at this morning uh, when Paul was uh, going about planting churches, what I believe to be the early Galatian churches in Acts 13 and 14. When he goes back through, and we'll look at that text this morning briefly, he, he goes back to these new churches, installs elders in these churches, and he begins to encourage them with basically one phrase that we're given in Acts, and that is, through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's a great word to start off on with these new churches, right? Through many tribulations, uh, you, we will enter the kingdom of God. And I was thinking through these things. That text came to mind later. But a text that uh, has been near and dear to my heart in this vein is James chapter 1 related to trials. And so that's how I came to the text this morning. I believe the Lord laid it on my heart that I would preach to you guys from James chapter 1. And I want to start with just asking this question. Can trials be a good thing? Can we look at a trial that we're going through, whatever the nature of it, and say, yeah, this is as hard as it is and as difficult and challenging as it is, this is actually something that is being worked out for good. Can suffering and difficulty that come with trials ever be considered more than just painful or discouraging? And indeed, I think if we look to the scriptures, we will see Yes, that is so. So if you would, please rise and stand in honor of the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 this morning. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and my message is titled, When Trials Come. Hear the word of the Lord. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, for the Christian, trials present to us a surprising opportunity, and they produce a glorious outcome. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you would bow with me in prayer, and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on the word. 
Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is all sufficient. It is inerrant. It is inspired by you. You have given it to us for our edification that we may be equipped and, and made ready to do every work you would have for us. We know these are the very words, your very words, the words of God that you have given to us. I pray this morning as I preach that you would empower me by the Holy Spirit to bring this message in a way that is honoring to you first and foremost, and in a way that is edifying to us as your people. That can only be done by the power of your spirit, yet you promise that your word as it goes forth will not come back void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. I pray this morning for your blessing. Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us your word, that we are not left in the dark, especially in trying and difficult circumstances that come into our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see these things this morning. May you accomplish your purpose. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Brother Josh asked me for an outline, and I believe you guys have that outline. We have two points this morning mainly because every time I do three points, it goes too long. So we're doing two points. <laughs> uh, but with those two points, it's really the text. The text is what drives our sermons. I know that you guys are, hold that same view of preaching. And really, there are two main points in this text this morning that I want us to see. The first is the opportunity trials present. The opportunity trials present. And the second is the outcome trials produce. The outcome trials produce. We'll have three sub points if you're following along. I'll try to make those clear as we go so that you can take notes under the first point and then two sub points um, under the second point. And then we will uh, conclude with some application at that point. So, first, the opportunity that trials present. Look at the text again. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that James does not say if you encounter trials. He very well could have said if, but he doesn't say if. He says when, when you encounter trials. There's an expectation. He knows the believers to whom he's writing. They are spread abroad in the Mediterranean world. He mentions that in verse 1, the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Mostly Jewish Christians who are undoubtedly going through difficulty, as this is one of the first letters of the New Testament written, struggling in this early movement we now call Christianity. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is God come in the flesh. And yet now there's all kinds of hardships and difficulties that he's going to address in the letter that are coming to them. James knows these believers are going through trials, and he knows they will come through more trials. And so he tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The text literally reads, whenever you fall among manifold trials or various kinds of trials. Whenever you fall among them is the verb that James uses here. There are many different verbs in the original language that he could have picked from. He chose this verb intentionally, and it has this unique picture of going and, and suddenly falling among something that surrounds you. So I know that's kind of confusing, but a great picture of this, I think, is when Luke uses this verb to tell the story or the account of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 and verse 30. You remember the text. There's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the text says as he's going along, he fell among the robbers. Out of nowhere, robbers jumped out, surrounded him, and began to beat him down. That's the verb that he picked here. 
That's the verb he chose. So it's as if uh, the trials are, are coming about and surrounding the person from every which direction. And it's not something that is chosen. It's something that is stumbled into, if you will, just falling into the trials. That's how it seems to feel when they come. It describes well the picture of a trial, does it not? Surrounding you from all sides, out of nowhere, you've seemingly tripped and fallen into this dark pit of suffering and difficulty. I like the New Living Translation. We're going to reference this many times this morning. Um, It captures the sense very well when it says, when troubles of any kind come your way. When the trials come your way, that's what he is talking about. We might ask ourselves then, what is meant here by the word trials? The word is a, a difficult word because it can mean trials and it can also mean temptation. And James seems to switch back and forth in this first chapter. You read in verse 12, he talks about blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then he uses the same word in verse 13 when he says, let no one say when he is tempted. It's the same word for trial there. It can mean an outward affliction that is coming upon you, or it can mean an inward enticement to sin. As we will see this morning, these trials are a part of God's work in us, And James makes clear in verse 13 that God never tempts anyone. So we should understand that he's not talking about temptations here. He's talking about trials, difficulties, circumstances that come from without, from outside of us, that encompass us all around. The question we might ask at that point then, though, is he just talking about, um, how do do I say this in a way that's not uh, offensive? Just, Just the spiritual kinds of trials, if you will, as if, Not everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. We know that. Everything matters. Everything is under God's control. But when we tend to think of trials, do you not do what I do and think, well, that's when, you know, I'm being faithful to Christ and I'm proclaiming Christ at my job and my workplace. And then someone is really upset at me or I lose my job for that. Like, that's a trial. That's what counts. You think that way? You know, these more spiritual trials, we, when we're suffering, we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Is that what James is referring to here? And I think it at least means that. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there if you like, or I will just read them from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was telling his believers, we see this idea of joy that we see in James as well. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, there's that term joy like we find in our text, and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Certainly James means at least the trials of persecution that come. Suffering for Christ, suffering for righteousness sake. But I submit to you this morning, I don't think James is just talking about those kinds of trials. In fact, I think he's talking about any kind of trying situation that comes into our lives, begins to challenge our faith, test our trust in God, no matter the circumstance, no matter the kind and the time in which it comes. So we see that this first point, I forgot to mention this, the inevitability of trials in the Christian life. The second point is this, trials come in all kinds of forms, all kinds of shapes, all kinds of sizes. If you look back at our text, we see, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. What does he mean by various kinds? 
I think the New Living Translation captures it best when it says troubles of any kind. It's really the sense. He's trying to make it clear any kind of trial. There's no limitation placed upon the text here. The idea, in fact, that he's communicating with the language is something that is very broad. He's casting a very wide net. Any difficult trying situation we may face. I think this is further evidenced by the way that James, writing to these believers who are going through all kinds of different things, references different kinds of trying circumstances throughout his letter. Uh, one commentator, one of my former professors, Dr. Plummer says in his commentary on James, a great man of God, humble man of God, great pastor and great scholar. He says, because James goes on to discuss all sorts of trials from economic injustice, chapter 5, verse 4, where the rich are, are, are withholding wages from the poor, to physical sickness, chapter 5, verse 14. Remember, he, he tells them if, if, if anyone is sick, call the elders of the church to come anoint them and, and pray for them. Plummer says it is important to see the trials of various kinds here as referring to any difficulties Christians face in this fallen world. In fact, we're going to see in a minute that trials have an effect or have a, 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 a work that they are producing, which is steadfastness. And James uses that term again in chapter 5. Go up to chapter 5 real quick. Chapter 5 in the book of James, and look at verse 11. He uses this word steadfastness again in relation to trials that Job went through. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Think of all of Job's trials that produced this steadfastness and how he endured through them. What, what did Job face? He faced the death of children. He faced sickness, physical pain, relational issues with his friends and with his wife. Wasn't a very good situation there economic loss, all kinds of trials. What I want you to see here is the trials that James are talking about are not simply persecution, though that would be included, but any difficulties we come to in this life. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute. Think on this. What have we just seen here for us as Christians today? What have we just seen? Trials are inevitable. They come in all shapes and sizes. What are we saying? We're saying that we as Christians are not immune to trials and suffering. We're not immune to it. In fact, we should expect trials. We'll see why in a moment. But I want to stop and say we ought to remove from our minds, dispel from our thinking this idea that if I'm being obedient and faithful to the Lord, I'm not going to suffer. It's a terrible teaching that is very common today, and it's a temptation that we fall into often, isn't it? Whenever a trial comes your way, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I wonder, Lord, I, I feel like I'm trying to be faithful. I feel like I'm trying to obey you. Why is this happening to me? Why now? Why in this way? We shouldn't think like that, brothers and sisters. Trials are inevitable. They come into our lives, and they have a purpose, as we shall see. I mentioned Acts chapter 14 earlier. Turn there, if you would. Acts chapter 14. 
context to this, I mentioned earlier, Paul uh, has gone out and proclaimed the gospel, doing the work that the Holy Spirit, chapter 13, verse uh, 2, says had set them apart for this work. That was to plant churches. Exactly. You guys are a picture of that activity still going on today here at Grace Covenant Church. But he went around preaching the gospel, making disciples, and he's going to end up coming back to the church that sent him to give a report, having completed the work that the Holy Spirit had sent them out to do. And in chapter 14, he and Barnabas are, uh, had just left the city of Derby, or they're about to leave the city of Derby. And he says in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They're encouraged to continue. Don't turn away. Don't abandon Christ. Continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We should expect trials. We should expect suffering as Christians. Consider our Lord, the eternal Son of God, who laid aside His privileges as God the Son, His, his prerogatives as, as the very maker of the universe, as Philippians 2 tells us. And He came to this world taking on human form and was obedient to God even in the midst of suffering even unto the point of death, even death on a cross. His flesh that he took on was real humanity. He was a real human being like you and like I, except without sin. And never did a man suffer as greatly as our Lord. And never was a man as perfectly obedient as our Lord was. Faithfulness to God, obedience to God does not mean there will not be trials. There will not be sufferers. We should expect them. So we've seen trials are inevitable. It's the first sub-point. The second is that they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Any trying or difficult circumstance we should face. The third sub-point this morning, under this first point of the opportunities trials present, is that we see the surprising opportunity trials present us with. And I say surprising because it is indeed surprising. It is counterintuitive. It is counter to our very nature. It says, number one, count it all joy. Back in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What in the world does that mean? Count it joy. So when, when trials come, when they, when they surround us and they hit us and it hurts and it's painful, we should consider it joy? What, what, what does that even mean? Does this mean to just be, I'm going I'm to dispel some myths about this text and some way it's been, ways it's been taught in the past at, at, that I've heard that, that I think are unhelpful and, and very hurtful. Does it mean that we should just be giddy and happy and always positive, putting on a fake smile all the time, never weeping, never grieving, just you know, grinning and bearing it and trying to be happy in the midst of the difficulty and the pain of the trial and, and rebuking ourselves and shaming ourselves for not feeling joy, for not feeling happy because we're suffering? Is that what this means? Maybe you've heard the text taught that way. And if you have, I am sorry. That is a gross misinterpretation of this text. That is not what James is saying in any way. Does it mean then, perhaps, that we should view the trial in and of itself as a joyful experience? Like, there's something wrong with me because this trial hurts. We should see it as joy and not bad. 
and not difficult. Some have taught it that way. And again, that is a denial of reality. It's a denial of what the word trial even means. The point of a trial is that it is difficult. It is painful. It is, by definition, a a situation that is trying. It's a trial. If it were not difficult, it would not be a trial. It would not be a test. It would not be uh, easy. It's supposed to be difficult. That's what makes a trial a trial. Even Peter, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 in a parallel text, Peter's point is different. He says trials are testing the genuineness of our faith. That's not James's point. But nonetheless, he acknowledges that trials are challenging. Notice what he says in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation being ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. These truths about God's mercy and grace, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? What's it say? Grieved. You've been grieved by various trials. Trials bring grief. Trials bring pain. It's absolutely incorrect to read James as to say we should make that experience out to be a joyful experience or that we should just try to suck it up and and deal with it and try to figure out why are we not happy all the time in the midst of this pain. And that leads us in, what is James actually saying here? I wanted to dispel those false ideas of the way this text has sometimes been taught. How are we to understand this command? And it is a command to count it all joy. How are we to actually understand what he's saying here? First, the word count, if you look there in verse 2, it is used in the New Testament almost every time when it comes in this form to convey the idea of making a judgment, in particular, a value judgment. So picture the scales. You've got two things. Something appears this way or seems this way, but actually we're going to choose to think of it this way. You're weighing two different options to consider something as something that it doesn't immediately appear to be. It is a thinking word. It is a word of the mind. In fact, sometimes it can be translated to think or to deem or to consider. I think consider is the best way to see it in our text. But all of that is activity that's focused here in the mind, in our thinking. Great example of this is Philippians chapter 3. And I I won't read the text, but paraphrase it. Paul is listing out his pedigree of all the things that he has as a faithful Jew of the tribe of of Benjamin. He is perfect, if you will, as far as he can be with relation to the law, or so he thinks. And he says, I considered all things, there's our term, as loss. Everything is loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, which for him meant suffering and pain and difficulty. He considered, if you see the scales, everything is on this side, all that he had, and then knowing Christ on this side. And looking at that, the natural response is, this seems better. But he says, no, I considered this is actually loss in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see how it works? That's what he's doing here in James. The same idea, the same word. Another example is Philippians 2, where Paul simply says in verse 3 that we are to consider others as more important than ourselves. 
It's the same word. It's not natural to consider somebody else as more important than you, right? Lots of people telling us that, that we should love ourselves first so then we can love somebody else, and that's it's not true, right? We, we consider others looking at that thinking, no, I think I'm more important, and, and Paul is saying, no, consider others as more important to your, than yourself, even though naturally it seems you should consider yourself as more important. It's a thinking word. It's a judgment. You're making a determination in your mind. Consider in your mind, he says, the trials that come as opportunities to have great joy. Don't look at them as what they initially appear to be and what you feel them to be. They are a time of pain. They are a time of difficulty. They are a time of suffering. But don't, don't stop there. Consider that actually, in reality, even though they're painful, even though they're difficulty, they're actually also a time for great joy. I love, again, the New Living Translation. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, this is very different from the world's response to trials, isn't it? This is very different from our own natural response to trials. This is not the way we approach suffering. This is not the way the world approached suffering. And as we're still in this fallen world and we still have this flesh, we're tempted and often pulled in that same direction. That our culture says suffering is always bad. Always. It's never a time for rejoicing. Never a time for joy in any sense. Why? Because you only live once. This life is all you got. And at the end of it, you cease to exist. And that's all there is. That's what the world says. There's nothing left. There's no eternity. This is all you've got. Live it up. Party hard because this is all it is. And so if trials come your way, man, that is really terrible for you, right? That's the world's response. Have as much joy and as much fun as you possibly can in this life. So brothers and sisters, as we begin to think about what James is saying here, this is really an opportunity for us, isn't it? To live not in conformity to this age, right? Trials come and we can sit next to somebody who's suffering too and say, this is terrible. This hurts. This is hard. This is difficult. But I'm choosing in my mind, even though there's all this pain, to think of this as actually an opportunity for great joy. Very counter to the way our world thinks and to we think naturally. But why? I want to move on to our second big point this morning. Why is it that we consider a trial to be a time for great joy. You can't, I can't just say that to you and you nod your head and say, oh yeah, that sounds good. Well, what's the basis for that, right? This judgment, we can see a command to choose between seeing the situation as a terrible thing and seeing it as actually an opportunity for joy, but what is the basis for that? That can't just be suspended out in midair. What is, what is the reason we can do this? What is, what is the basis for making such a value judgment? Well, as we see from the text, it is not a decision that doesn't have a basis for it. It actually does. And one that compels us to obedience. And that's the second point this morning. The outcome that trials produce. I want to look at verses 3 and 4 for this. The first sub-point is verse 3. We see that trials can be considered an opportunity for joy because of knowing what they produce. If we know what they produce, we know what they're doing, we can consider it a time for joy. Verse 3. He says for, that's what the word for means, because, why can you consider it a time of joy? For, because you know 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Notice again, look at the text carefully. James is not pointing to feelings. He's pointing to thinking. The word consider is a thinking word. The word know here, because you know it has to do with your mind. He points at the believers to what they know as the basis for why they can have joy, not what they feel. Now, I want to stop here for a minute and jump away from the text for a sec to say a few things um, that I think it's important to say for us, for our edification, I hope. We know that trials come with all kinds of feelings and emotions. Grief, sadness, despair, sorrow, pain, even apathy, or just like cold numbness. Anybody ever felt like that? Right? Suffering is not fun. It hurts. It's painful when trials come. And I want to make a point that it's important to note that these feelings in and of themselves are not sinful. They can be, but not in and of themselves. God made us emotional beings. He gave us emotions. Emotions, I do not believe, are a part of the fall. They're a part of our makeup as human beings. They can be sinful, but not necessarily. Think of Jesus, for example. He was, we're told in Scripture, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Remember that he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. John 10, 35. Jesus, if you read that text carefully, and I challenge you to do that, Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. He knew he was sick, and he purposefully waited before coming. This is a dear friend. And when he comes, it's so amazing. When you look at the text, there are all kinds of emotional terms in that text to describe Jesus' response. It's emotions like he was stirred up. Some translators even try to argue that Jesus was actually angry. I mean, the term can mean that literally just in turmoil internally. And then the shortest verse in the Bible comes, John 10, 35, Jesus wept. He knew Lazarus was going to be dead. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. And yet he is shaken up inside with emotion. And he weeps, I think, because of realizing the power of death and the curse of sin and its hold on humanity that he had come to deliver and destroy through defeating the devil at the cross and through saving us from our sins, the cross. Nonetheless, Jesus wept. He was experiencing emotion. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, another perfect example of this, right before he goes to the cross, he is in absolute agony. Medically speaking, to sweat drops of blood means you are under extreme pressure. There's a lot of emotion there, and yet Jesus suffered, though he did, was never with sin. Never did Jesus sin. This might step on some toes this morning, hopefully in a good way. We as Christians are not called to be rigid, deterministic Stoics for whom the doctrine of God's sovereignty makes us lifeless stones. It stinks. <laughs> but it's true. God's sovereignty is not a bludgeon to beat your brothers and sisters down with when they're suffering. Amen. We are called to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 13. We are called to help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. God's sovereignty is true. God ordained these trials. We're going to see that. He is working through these trials, and we can therefore consider them joy. 
But so many times I have seen God's sovereignty used as a means to basically tell people and shame people into silence because, well, you shouldn't be feeling that way because God's in control, remember? It's just heartless, and it lacks compassion. It lacks the compassion that our Lord had, of whom we are told in Scripture, he is one who does not break a bruised reed, and he does not put out a smoldering wick. I know there's debate about the meaning of that passage, but I take that to mean if you imagine a reed, a stick, if you will, that's got a, a rough spot, a bruised spot where it's been bent a little bit, he doesn't come in there and go to that spot and break it, right? Or, or a, think of a candle that's about out. It's just got the little embers still going on that wick, just like lightly there. He doesn't come and just blow it out. That's not the way our Lord operates. He's compassionate. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. The second thing I want to say here before we go back to the text, it's not wrong to feel pain, to have emotion in the midst of suffering, and sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. Think of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He described himself and the other apostles as sorrowful, full of sorrow, yet what? Always rejoicing. Think of Jesus, that we just described him in, in agony in the garden, right? And yet, we're told in Hebrews 12 too, he endured the cross, despising its shame, for what? The joy that was set before him. You can have joy. You can consider a trial to be an opportunity of joy, all the while still experiencing the suffering and the pain that comes with it. We're not called to deny that, nor does James teach that. All that said... It's important, uh, I, I, before we go back to the text, I had one more point I wanted to make. I apologize. James, pointing these believers to what they know and not what they feel. And I just want to say, as a general principle, let us remember that when the storms of life come, when suffering hits, when trials come, don't depend on how you feel. It's not wrong to feel pain, as I've said, but don't depend on how you feel. No, remember what you know. That's what James is saying here. What he is applying it to is a little different than what I'm going to say this morning, but I'm going to tell you what Scripture says of you, believer. God loves you. He will take care of you. He will provide for your needs. He is good always, and he will never leave you or forsake you. We know that. You can hang on to that. Those are truths, promises of Scripture about the very character of the God who is walking with you through the difficulty and the trial that he has actually ordained for you for a purpose that we're going to see here in a moment. Okay, now back to our text. What is it that these believers in Jesus, or James excuse me, is writing? Uh, no, if you look at the text, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces stead." fastness. Now there's some debate in the, in the literature on this as to what exactly it is that they knew. How did they know that the testing of their faith produces steadfastness? There's not really any clear source for this other than I think the best answer is to say, just like Paul, going back to those new church plants was saying, hey, you're going to face many tribulations on your way to the kingdom of God. That's part of, that's part of taking up your cross and following Christ. That this was basic understanding to basic New Testament Christianity. That being a Christian actually means there's probably going to be more suffering in your life than not. That suffering and trials are a part of it, but that they have a purpose. And he says, you know that the testing of your faith 
produces or brings about steadfastness. What is steadfastness? You ever wondered that? That's a, that's a difficult uh, word. We don't use it very often in our day, and maybe it's not the best word to use for that reason. Uh, but the word here, hupomene, in the Greek text, can be translated as steadfastness, or can be rendered perseverance or endurance. Fortitude, I really like that one, fortitude. It can also be patience, but that doesn't really capture the best idea. The basic idea is it's referring to, again, our mind, our mindset, the frame of our mind and our attitude in thinking about a situation. Uh, the capacity, one dictionary says, for resolute continuance in a course of action. It's not the, the pressing on that is emphasized, but the capacity to do that that is being emphasized. It's a character trait. It's a virtue, if you will. The word itself is formed uh, in such a way that means, and many of you have probably heard this, remaining under pressure. And that's a really, really good idea. Remaining, bearing up and remaining underneath the pressure. And that describes what a trial is like. It's pressure, pain, difficulty from without that's pressing down. And steadfastness is this capacity to remain, to not abandon the faith, not turn from Christ, to not go the way you should not, but to remain and continue pressing on, persevering unto the end. I referenced my former professor earlier, um, and he renders it this way in only a way that he could. If you ever got to meet him, he's a funny, really great guy. Uh, he said he thinks the best way to render it in English is stick to itness. Not a word. All hyphens there, made up word, right? But stick to itness, the quality of being able to stick to it no matter what comes your way. It's really the virtue. It's a Christian virtue, often described in Scripture and often connected to suffering and hope. I want to show you a few texts. You don't have to turn there. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance, that's that word, steadfastness. Through steadfastness and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Corinthians 1.6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, this is Apostle Paul speaking, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure. There's that word. Remain steadfast in the same sufferings that we suffer. Romans 5.3, another text similar to ours. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know, there's that word again, we know that suffering produces steadfastness. It produces this endurance, this capacity to remain. So the trial itself is a process of testing that is bringing about this endurance, this steadfastness that is a really an incredible virtue. I want to stop for a minute and think about that. Think of, think of all of the underdog stories you know. I tried to come up with a good one, and there are just so many. Think of the underdog stories you think about, the person that's always beat down and beat down and beat down, and, and in the end continues on and, and gains the victory, whatever that is, whether it's a sports thing or some war or conflict or something like that. Those, those stories always inspire us, and they excite us as a culture. They're extremely popular, why are they so popular? Because they're displaying this very virtue. This person who, despite being beat down over and over and over again, continues on and presses on to victory. Now, that's a secular way to think about it, if you will, or a worldly way. 
But in reality, this is a Christian virtue, and this is really what the Christian life is about. Pressing on, persevering to the end, to glory. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Think about Philippians chapter 3. Turn there if you would. Philippians chapter 3. Paul describes the Christian life in this way. Philippians 3 and verse 7. We read, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now notice what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Be it brothers, I do not consider what I have made, that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Steadfastness is the capacity, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, to do that. To press on, to, to leave the things that are in the past behind, and to continue on pressing on toward the call, toward the upward call, of, and the prize God in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy. He talks about finishing the race. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Christian life is much like those movies of the underdog, being beaten down and by God's grace and his strength, continuing on and pressing on. And as we see now, the trials are a means by which God is making that capacity in us to do that by his grace. He is using the trials to produce this in us. So now, back to James. Why is this so important? No, it's not common to preach on virtues these days. They're all over scripture. But the point here is not that the virtue in and of itself is what James is getting at. That is, that is step one. Steadfastness is step one. Endurance. Stick to itness. Having that capacity to press on to the end. The trials are forming that. That's what they're doing. The testing of the faith is what's bringing that about. That is step one, if you will. These brothers and sisters need it, and so do we. That's what God is doing, step one. But step two, and this is the final point, the sub-point, second one, under this second point, is that we see that trials can be considered an opportunity of joy because of God's ultimate purpose in them for us. We see that trials can be considered an opportunity of joy because of God's ultimate purpose in them for us. Steadfastness has a work that it must do in us. It's a weird way to put it, but that's the way James is putting it. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness, that's a command, 
And he's referring to the steadfastness or the endurance he just talked about. Let that capacity to remain under the pressure and continue on, let it have its full effect. The text literally reads, it's perfect work. Let God's work in the trial of producing this steadfastness actually come to its perfect point. Where is it going? What is it doing? What is the perfect work? And it says that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, do you see what he is saying here? Trials are not intended to destroy you. They're not intended to destroy me. They don't mean God has abandoned us. Trials are intended to change us. Not just to produce this capacity that remains steadfast, but that that in and of itself is going to be a means by which God is using these trials over and over and over again to actually change us. In fact, one commentator puts it this way, which I thought was so well, what is the perfect work that steadfastness has to do in you and me? He says, you are that perfect work. James is not just talking about the virtue here. That virtue is actually working in us by God's grace to actually change us as people, to change us entirely. Now, some people get very concerned by the word perfect here. I have at times in my life been very concerned about it. It does seem on its face to be a concerning thing. He says, let steadfastness have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, in no way. If we understand what James is saying here, we don't need to be concerned. He's not talking about a kind of sinless perfection that some speak of that we can attain to in this life. James, or not James, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10 through 10, uh, absolutely refutes that. I'm not going to even go there. That's sidetracking us from the text. James is not talking about what we attain to in this life. And we'll see that in a minute. What is James saying here? He uses two words. The word, you look at verse 4, perfect and complete. And in the original text, these words are synonyms. They mean virtually the same thing, but there's a slight nuance. The word perfect would have been understood to refer to someone who is truly righteous. Someone who is perfect, a Jew would have heard that and thought of people like maybe Noah or Abraham. Someone who in their minds, though we know they weren't perfectly righteous, but in the Jews' minds of that day, they would have thought that is a perfectly righteous person. Someone who's obeying the law, who is living faithfully for God, who has a, a true faith, that is a perfectly righteous person. The righteous man, if you will. And it speaks of a kind of perfection of which there is nothing beyond. That is the final point. Like you've reached the pinnacle. There is no degree beyond it. It is absolutely perfect, pristine righteousness. The second word complete, again, is a synonym, means similar, but it actually talks about the incremental nature of that process. That for the perfectly righteous man, there are all of these characters, these virtues, these traits that have to be added one by one by one, if you will, kind of like Legos being built up to build uh, something. Or, or for some of you older folks in the room, not really old, but maybe older, Maybe like a little older than me or my age. The Power Rangers, if you remember that growing up, right? All the Power Rangers would form together to make the big robot monster thing. Like all of the parts come together to make one big whole. That's what this word is communicating. And when the whole is done, it's perfect. It's complete. It's not lacking in any way. 
So perfect, perfectly righteous, complete whole, all the parts together, not lacking in any way. Now I'm going to surprise you hopefully a little bit this morning. Brothers and sisters, this kind of perfection here is actually what we are called to strive for in the Christian life. This is the goal to which we are to work by the power of the Spirit, but we will never attain it until we reach glory. We will never make it. This is the perfection Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, when he said, you therefore must be, same word, perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. As God is the perfectly righteous one, so you must be perfectly righteous. That's the standard that we cannot meet. We know that. But yet it is, as Christians, being declared righteous in Christ, now empowered by the Spirit, the goal to which we must move and work and strive. It's the standard to which we are called, yet it is the standard which only one perfect man, only one truly righteous man, has ever attained in this life, our Lord Jesus who Hebrews tells us was himself made perfect through what? Suffering. Through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. That's what Hebrews tells us. Though only one could, listen carefully to this. I wrote this down because I didn't want to miss it. Though only one could, has, and ever will be described in this age, in this life, in this world, with the terms that James has used here, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's Jesus. Nevertheless, it is into his image, unto that perfection, that we are being formed by God and striving toward in this life. We know that James is picturing the kind of perfection that will only be met in glory because of what he says in verse 12. Look down to verse 12. He uses the word trial. He uses the word steadfast again. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, that's life. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That crown of life is referring to eternal life. That's referring to glory. He doesn't reach that point. He doesn't receive the crown until he makes it to the other side crosses the river in the language of Pilgrim's Progress and makes it to the celestial city. So James is, he's picturing here what we're, what we're to be moving toward by our own striving, if you will, empowered by the Spirit, but also what God is using the trials to move us toward. And yet recognizing that reality is so glorious and so grand, it won't be finished until we make it to the other side. Does that make sense? It's what he is picturing and what he is describing. It's what Paul said, as we read earlier in Philippians 3. He wants to attain the resurrection of the dead. And he goes on to say, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus has made me his own. What he's describing here is the process of sanctification, to use a big Theological word, right? Being made and made more and more like Jesus in perfect righteousness, in holiness. Just as Christ had to suffer and endure trials to be made perfect, according to Hebrews, so the pathway of trials and suffering is laid before us as we follow Christ. And through the means of trials, among many other things, God is doing that work in you. 
and in me. Trials are one of his greatest tools to dig into us and to shape our character and to make us more and more who he wants to be. Now, that is not valued at all in our culture, right? People don't care about character anymore and who we are, but the Christian life is about God making a people for himself who are going to be filling a new world that he is going to make in which righteousness dwells. And only righteous people can be there because only righteousness dwells. That's not just the reality that we have by faith in Christ that is true, but it is a reality towards which God is actually forming us. And trials are the ways he does some of his best work. I want to read one last text, and then we will conclude. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following. We read this, uh, speaking of the doctrine of God's providence, that he is working everything out toward his goals and purposes, including you, believer, and me, working in us to produce and make what he would have us to be even through trials. That's what this text refers to, is the providence of God's working. So it's verse 28 of Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things, everything, the text is clear. In the original, nothing is excluded. Everything is working together for those who love God for good. For good. Think of Joseph, right? Thrown into prison. God, he says to his brothers, has taken the evil that you meant against me, the suffering that I have endured, and turned it for good. Only God can do that. Right? You watch all the action movies and the bad guy gets blown away, right? He, he gets done away with. God doesn't just end evil. He takes evil and uses it for good. He takes suffering and trials and difficulty, which are not what God intended for this world, but exists now because of the fall. And he uses that in us to make us who he wants us to be. God has a greater purpose in that trial. Not just that you suffer, not just that you have pain, but that you can have joy by thinking about the fact that God is going to make you who he wants you to be through that trial. I didn't finish the text, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed or made into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. But that is not the end. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Made perfectly like Jesus. Perfect and complete, lacking in no way, as we see in the book of James. I hope you can see now clearly why you and I can consider it an opportunity for great joy when troubles of any kind come our way. It's a time for struggle. It's a time for pain and difficulty, yes. But even in that, we can look at it on the scales and say, this is an opportunity for me to rejoice, even though it hurts, even though I'm feeling the pain. I'm not denying that. But even in that, I can say, God has a greater plan. God has a greater purpose. He is shaping me. He is molding me. He is making me into who he wants me to be. I am a vessel to be used by him. There's something greater he has in store for me than just the pain of this trial, but it is his tool. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if you are facing a trial, even now, if you are suffering even now, 
Anchor yourself with what you know. Don't depend upon your feelings. Anchor yourself with the truth that we have here in this text. God has a plan. He has a purpose. A glorious purpose. Whatever the trial, whatever its scope, whatever its circumstance, God is using it to make you who he wants you to be. Now don't tune me out. You know that happens at the end of sermons. I do the same. So I don't blame you and I don't look down on you. <laughs> Lunch is coming. The sermon's almost over. He said he was going to conclude 10 minutes ago. Wrap it up, right? I know that feeling. I've thought the same thoughts. I'm not condemning you. Um, <laughs> go back to the verse of James. I want to end with this last point. This has just been so encouraging to me, and I pray and hope that it will be encouraging to you. Maybe you are in the midst of the trial now, and it is so intense, it is so difficult, it's so fresh. The wounds are real, the emotions are there, the pain is there, and it is hard to think about thinking of this as a time to have joy. You're in the thick of it. Or maybe you know somebody who is, and they're struggling. This text, yes, yes, Ryan, I see what you're saying, I see what the text says, I get it, but I'm struggling. What do, what do, what do you do? Would you believe that God anticipated that we might have that kind of response? Do you believe that? Would you believe that James would even anticipate such a thing? This is so often missed, but it is so critical. Look back at the text. Verse 5. I promise I won't preach it. We'll end with this. If any of you lacks wisdom. Have you ever thought, what in the world is James doing? Why in the world does he talk about this? James, throughout his letter... He's, it's so cool. He stitches the letter together with, with literary devices, one called tailhead linkage, where you use a term and a similar term to flip to a new topic, but they're linked together so they're connected. He did the same thing in verse 1. The word greetings there is, is, is the same root as the word for joy, and then in verse 2 he talks about joy. He's done the same thing here. He ended with this phrase, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and then he turns around and says, if any of you, what? Lacks. He's anticipating that you're not there yet and you're lacking something to see what he has said. And what are you lacking? What am I lacking, perhaps? It's wisdom. I know I'm lacking wisdom, but I don't want to speak for you, right? What is wisdom? It is the God, this is one commentator says, God-given insight that provides the perspective necessary to see past the trials to their end result. If you're struggling to see this, if you're struggling to make that value judgment and have great joy, then brother or sister, ask for wisdom to see things from God's perspective. And listen to this. What does the text say? Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. God promises to give wholeheartedly a bank account that is never ending and a heart that is ready to give. That's what he's saying. And not only a heart that is ready to give, he says, without reproach. God is not up there waiting for you to come to him so he can turn around and scold you and mock you for your weakness. That's what the text is saying. That's not God. That might be how we would operate. That's not how God operates. 
He is a father, wholeheartedly ready to give you all you need, to give you the strength, to give you the wisdom to see what James has just said and to rejoice even in the midst of the suffering of the trial. He knows your weakness. He knows mine. He knows our frame, as the psalm says, that we are but dust. So brother or sister, if that is you, ask him for wisdom. Ask in faith, and he promises to give it to you. Bank on that. So can trials really be a good thing? I want to end where we started. Indeed, they remind us that God is not finished with us yet. I want to leave you with this last thought. Remember this. God often does his greatest work through trials. That is one of his greatest tools. They are never pointless, and they are never wasted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I ask on our behalf and behalf of everyone here, Lord, your saints, your, your, your beloved sons and daughters whom you have saved by the grace that you give through the work of Christ on the cross, forgiving us of our sins and reconciling us to yourself. Father, I ask you as a loving father, would you give us the wisdom to be able to look at the trials and difficulties that we face as opportunities for rejoicing even in the midst of the pain? Would you encourage us by your word and by your spirit to come to you as a, as a child coming to a loving father, to receive all that we need, to get the strength that we need, the wisdom to have this perspective that we may do as your word has said. Consider the trial's joy and to let the steadfastness that you are working have its perfect work to make us into who you would have us to be. We ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.